All right, how we doing, huh? Come on, give it up for our praise team, our worship people. Man, they did a lot for us, okay? Awesome stuff. I don't know about y'all, I don't know about y'all, but man, I just feel like it's warm in here and uh, that concerns me. Um, I, you know, I kind of have a little perspiration when I preach. So some of y'all, you go to the gym, you know, you stay away from McDonald's, just try preaching, bro, okay? It'll get that off of you. But I'm a little worried about that, we'll see how it goes. Hey, why don't you check something out? Why don't you listen to this really carefully? This coming Saturday, okay? What is that, a couple days away? Two, three days away? This coming Saturday, it's been two years. This is the two-year anniversary this Saturday. Something called a coronavirus. Who in the world ever even heard that word two years ago? In particular, the COVID-19 coronavirus showed up and rocked our world. I want to remind you of that moment in our church. I've had a couple of occasions where I've shared this in some settings, and so if you've heard it before, just kind of hear it again. It is important on this weekend to remember that. Thursday night, March 12, 2020, 5.10 p.m. Now that minute is very, very important because of what happens in this building on Thursday afternoon. Let me, let me tell you what happens every Thursday here. It happened here just a few hours ago. At four o'clock, we get together, there's a few of us, and we kind of run through everything we're gonna do this evening, make sure everybody's on the right page, everybody knows uh, what you're supposed to be doing. And then at 4.30, there's a few of us that gather on these steps right down here, some of our staff, and sometimes just random people kind of, and be a part of that. We just kind of gather around here about 4.30, uh, did it a couple hours ago, and we just pray for tonight. We just pray for tonight. And what we prayed for a few hours ago is just the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in this room. Happens every single Thursday night at 4.30. Then at five o'clock, these people that are up here on the stage and they lead us in worship, they start making their way in about five o'clock. Every single Thursday night, about five o'clock, they start kind of roaming in and getting their stuff all ready and get ready for their rehearsal. At about five o'clock, I go back into my office and I'll kind of read through my message again and spend a little time in prayer, just kind of chilling out a little bit, just be in total honest with you. Uh, today, I took a nap about, about 5.30. I took about a 15 minute nap, okay? And so that happens every single Thursday in this church. And at 5.10 p.m. on March 12th, 2020, two years ago this Saturday, I heard a knock on my office door. And I went and opened the door, and there was our worship pastor, Aquila Bach, looking like he had just had a visit with a ghost. And he looked at me and said, dude, we got a problem. I said, what do you mean we got a problem? One of your singers can't be here? We got a toilet backed up somewhere? What, what do you mean we got a problem? He said, Governor Holcomb has just finished a press conference and is limiting any gathering of people in the state of Indiana, including churches, to a maximum of 200 people effective immediately. And I said, yeah, that's a problem. And the reason it was a problem here is because the, thurs, the previous Thursday night, we had 326 people in this building and it was growing every single week and we thought, what in the world are we gonna do? 
And so I called my leadership team really quick. They were here. I said, get out of my office really fast. We came down. We sat in a circle, and we said, how in the world do you cancel a service in 90 minutes? How do we do that? And so we started doing a little calculation, and we figured the governor was going to scare some of you away. And it happened to be raining cats and dogs right then. It was, a, it was just a downpour of rain. And we knew that a lot of you think, I don't know why you think, but a lot of you think that that stuff that falls from the sky will immediately kill you. And so, so we started thinking about that. And there's going to be some people that are going to be scared from the governor. And there's going to be people that don't go out in the rain. And so we, we decided just like that, let's have service Tonight, there's not going to be 200 people here, and then we will cancel Sunday morning. And so we went ahead and made that decision. We got a hold of Jordan Puckett, who's our technical director here, and we looked at him and said, dude, you got an hour and a half to learn how to tape this service and start an online service on Sunday morning. You got 90 minutes to figure it out. And so we had church that night. We had 173 people come that night. So thank God the governor didn't have to handcuff us and take us away. And Jordan got the online thing out. And for the next 11 weekends, we were sitting on our couches at home instead of our seats in this auditorium. And it was among the saddest period of my whole life. So this weekend is a pretty big deal to us. It's a really big deal. And if you, you were to grab me about five years ago and you were to say something to me like, hey, what would happen if a global pandemic came and shut the church down for three months? What would happen to us? And I would say about five years, I, I would say, you know what? I, I don't know how we recover from that. I don't know. It's hard enough to build churches with God's help. It is incredibly hard to help them recover. And then if you told me there would continually be more and more waves of this thing so that we would be up and down and up and down and up and down, I would have, I would have shook my head and said, I, I just don't know, man, I don't know. Well, let me tell you what's happened over the last two years. We have baptized 179 people during that period of time. And, um, and, and it's gonna be 180 tonight because a sweet little girl's gonna be baptized and any of you chickens have been bailing out. It might be more than that. You come see me afterwards. Now, watch this. If you take out what we call, we call them special days here at Eastside. We, we call them special days there, Easter and Christmas, when everybody and their brother shows up just to get a free donut or something. And so if you take those kind of unusual weekends and you put them over to the side, let me, let me tell you, last weekend was the highest in-person worship attendance we've had in two years. Last weekend, that's, that happened last weekend. Now watch this, watch this. Let me, let, me, let me build on that, okay? Let me build on that so that you understand what last weekend was, okay? Catch this. Is if you took those special days and you put them off to the side, last weekend, our church is 59 years old. We're gonna be 60 years old uh, this, this fall. So in six decades, last weekend was the seventh largest weekend in attendance we've had in the history of our church. Seventh, okay? 
And when we take our online attendance and we bring it in to that, and we are the most conservative church in America on how we count online attendance. Next time you hear a preacher say, we had 75,000 people online, look him in the eye and call him a liar, okay? We are the most conservative you could be. So if you take our, our conservative online attendance last week and put it up with all the people that are here, listen to this, don't miss this, don't miss this, two years of pandemic last weekend, the largest worship attendance in the history of Eastside Christian Church last weekend. Now, this don't mean nothing to me, but it does Aquila. Offerings, <laughs> I, can, I can blame it on him, okay, watch this. Offerings today, from last two, two years ago to today, our offerings are 25% higher than they were only two years. Unheard of, unheard of. Now here's the question. Here's why I'm even talking about that. And you say, what, what does that have to do with the sermon? I want you to listen to this. How in the world did we come out of this like that? How in the world did that happen? And I know the answer, okay? We're Christians, we're in God's house, it's his place, we gotta say it, he did it, okay? I get that, okay? And that's true, that's true. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And so mark that down, remember that, if you're a child of God, something good happens to you, you just need to know God had something to do with it. But let me, let me say this very carefully, listen to this, is that God did all of that through you, you. How did we come out on the other end of that like we are today? God would not have done it if you didn't show up and fight through it. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at the two year mark, when we're on the other side of this thing and we celebrate everything that's happened in our ministry, that we are dealing with the passage of scripture that we're gonna talk about today when we close out this series called Quit Being a Baby. It is not a mistake that God had me preach this this weekend. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we're doing this thing. I kind of introduced it with this slide. Check it out as we're talking about our own spiritual journey from infancy to adulthood. And hear this, hear this. Make sure that it's settled in your mind. Let me, let me put that slide back up here if you don't mind. Is it all of us coming? No, the one before that, please. There we go, there we go. All of us come to Jesus here. All of us come as infants in Christ. And it is the will of God that we go from being a baby in Jesus to an adult in Jesus. That is his will. And if we stay in infant situations, if we never get beyond being a baby in Jesus, then that is a problem. It's a serious problem. And so what we're working through over a few weeks here at Eastside is we're diving into this passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews talks about that. And he talks about it because there is a problem that a whole lot of Christians are staying at baby status. And instead of growing up into an adult believer, adult follower of Jesus, they're just hanging around as an infant. And this author of Hebrews felt so strongly about that that he wrote this, this incredibly 
powerful section of material. And we've been working through that here at Eastside for a few weeks because what he talks about is here are the ways that you go from infancy to adulthood. There are specific ways that you do that. Now, play with that for, for me just for a second. If somebody asks you, hey, I'm an infant in Jesus, just came to Jesus, just met Jesus, I want to become an adult, and they ask you, how do you go from being a baby in Jesus to an adult in Jesus? What would your answer be? If they said, help me, I want to grow up into that, what do I do? And, and you had to write out, here's what you do. What would be on your list? There's a whole lot of us would have, we'd have the things that you're not supposed to do, wouldn't we? Okay, you can't do that no more. I'll never do that. Don't ever get caught doing that. We talk about the things that you can't do. I remember a million years ago when I was in high school and my buddies and I would, would run in our cross country team when we were all Christians and we would sing the old army tune while we were running. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go out with girls that do. So we'd have that on our list, okay? And you got all this stuff, okay, that you say, you can't do that. And then, then there'd be people you, you got on your list, you know, the biggies. Oh, you got to go to church, man. You're not going to grow up. You don't go to church. You got to serve your neighbor. Even if their music's too loud, you got to serve your neighbor. We'd have all these things. And your list is probably good. But it's fascinating what was on the list of the author of Hebrews. And it's almost shocking. He kind of made it really simple. He kind of pared it down and said, dude, if you're going to go from infancy to adulthood, these things got to be happening in your life. And if they ain't happening in your life, you're not becoming an adult. You will stay a baby forever. And so we've just been walking through them here. And if you're here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the first one that he talked about, and that was the Word of God, of, of, of grabbing a hold of the Word of God and learning it and reading it and studying it and applying it. And again, I don't want to go back two weeks ago and re-preach the message, but I want you to hear this, that if you are not growing in the Word of God, if that's not happening in your life, you will always be a baby. Somebody say amen to that. You just, you cannot grow without the word of God. And so that's how the author starts this text. And then, out of the blue, if you was here last week, it's almost shocking. He says, let me talk about another thing. And he threw out this crazy warning right in the middle of his passage. And this warning is almost frightening. We talked about it last week. And what he said is, is that if you stay a baby, if you don't grow, you are risking the possibility of going in reverse so far to the point that God's not gonna let you come back. Man, that is wicked stuff. And where we're at today is how he closes it. So you wanna be infant, you wanna become an adult, then you gotta be the word. Hey, pay attention this morning, don't forget it. And then he closes on something that we probably would have never had on our list. He closed it with work. That if you want to come from an infant to an adulthood, then you're going to have to deal with this concept of work. And I want to show you how he brings it up in the book of Hebrews. And if you have your Bibles, you can find it. It's in chapter 6. And he brings up in the 6th chapter, I'm going to start reading in the ninth verse, and I want you to pay attention to how he brings up the concept of work. He says this starting in the ninth verse. 
He said, now, even though we speak like this, then he calls them dear friends. We are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And let me just kind of line out the, the, the key points of that text. Let me start with this. He starts with this idea of things that accompany salvation. So when you're saved, when you are genuinely saved, there are things that accompany that, that come along with that. And I want you to hear me when I say this. Your spiritual journey does not stop when you're saved. It doesn't stop then. And that's a major problem with a lot of people, and it's a reason a lot of Christian people never get past infancy. They stay as babies because they see the baptistry as the end game. It's the checklist. It's like, whoo, I got that done, now I'm good, bro. Can I tell you this about the baptistry? Look at it. The baptistry is the starting line, not the finish line. And if you think that that's the end of it all, that I'm saved now, then you've missed the whole point, and that's why you stay as a baby. And the author just comes out and says, no, there are things that accompany that. Here's a shocker. Some people get baptized, and the only thing that happened, really, is they got wet. Anybody hear that? Because there are things that accompany it. There are things that happen as a result of your salvation. And he then moves it on by suggesting in the flow of the text that the thing that accompanies salvation, look at what he says, he will not forget your work. So your work flows from your salvation. I wanna say something about that I think is really important is that he's talking about activity. He's talking about something you do, something you, you are involved in, something you are putting effort toward to advance the cause of the kingdom of God in a dark and evil world. So you are a part of that work. Now, I find this fascinating. I want you to hear this. He could have used the word here, your service. He could have called us servants. So, so when you come to salvation, then you become a servant. And that would have been very appropriate for him to talk about because all through the Bible, hundreds of times, believers, followers of God are called servants. Jesus called himself a servant. It would have been very appropriate if he said, okay, you come to Christ, you're in salvation now, and now begin to serve. But that word kind of has a soft feel to it, almost kind of a humble, yeah you need, I'm here, I'm here. And the author didn't want to do that. He wanted to be in our face. Remember I said a few weeks ago, sometimes God wants to get up under your grill, huh? And that's what he's doing here because he used the word work. 
Work is more than service. Work involves energy. Work involves something that maybe is a little difficult to do. Work, work, work involves effort. It's tiring. It's not always fun. It's, it's not always convenient. And so when people come to Jesus as an infant and they want to become an adult, what he ends this text by saying is the way that you make that is your agreement to work, to pull your bootstraps up and to put on the helmet and get to work on behalf of the kingdom of God. Now he put some teeth in it when he added, we want you to show this same diligence. Let me tell you what that word means. That word means to run without delay. That's what that word means. So if you were playing in the front yard of your house and you got your two-year-old granddaughter or your two-year-old daughter in there and, and she starts to make her way out in the street, you diligently go get her, don't you? You jump out there. You don't go, oh, man, I got to get her again. No, you don't do that. You are diligent. And what John, or Paul does, if he's the author of Hebrews, is he builds on that and says, that's how you work, with diligence. You, you pop out of the baptistry. You run into the dressing room and you put your clothes on and you fly down those steps and say, what's my job, man? What's my job? That's diligence. And then the author throws a final jab in the text when he says, now we don't want any of you to become lazy. Let me tell you about that word lazy. It's only used two times in the whole Bible. Probably because it's the last word you would ever attach to a Christian. It means to be slow. It means to be sluggish. I found it interesting when I looked at how the word was used in secular language outside of a spiritual context that it was often used to be hard of hearing. And so because you didn't hear a command, you don't respond to it. Ladies, have you ever looked at your husband and asked him to take the trash out and he sat there and stared at the TV like he was in a coma and never moved? That's that word. That's that word. And the author says, that, that's not who we are. That's not who Christians are. Christians, that which accompanies our salvation is that we are diligent, we are quick to work. Now, let me, let me take that whole thing and let's, let's talk about this because that's tough stuff. And I've shared with you during this whole series that what, what the author dreams up here from infancy to adulthood, this is not little simple VBS Bible school type little kindergarten. This is tough stuff. And so I want you to know that what he brings up is consistent with what is taught in the rest of the Bible. I've shared this before. Repetition increases relevance. So it's mentioned a lot of times in the Bible. That means this is really important. And so you look throughout the rest of the Bible, and there's other places that talk the same thing. Let me show you what I think, just my humble opinion, is the single most important passage in the whole Bible. There are more than 31,000 verses in this Bible. I'm going to show you what I believe to be the most important. It's got to be in the top five. 
It's a passage of scripture that the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, and he wrote this text. Let's look at it, Ephesians 2. He said, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Watch that, not by works so that no one can boast. Here's what that says. You don't get to heaven because you earned it. Come on now, huh? You don't get to heaven because God says, whoa, you are one awesome cat. Come on in. You don't get to heaven like that. You get to heaven for one reason, absolutely one reason, because God was graceful. And he put his son on the cross to die as the penalty of our sins. And he rose that son from the grave, the power of resurrection, and we put our trust in that. We put our bank in that. We say, dude, that's all I got going for me is the death of Jesus. And, and Paul says, that gets you to heaven. It doesn't have anything at all to do with your works. That's the most powerful passage of scripture in the whole Bible. But did you ever pay attention to the next verse? Look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our works are important. Are they important? You better believe they are important, but our works are not in order to get saved. Our works are a result of being saved. You see the difference there? And so one of the things that accompany salvation if you're really saved, if something more than just getting wet happened in a baptistry, then one of the things that accompany that is what? Work. You work on behalf of the kingdom of God. Let me show you one more text that kind of supports that, and then I'm going to do some things with you. There was a messed up church in the Bible in the city of Corinth. We've done a lot of Corinth stuff here. And in 1 Corinthians, um, he kind of brings up this idea that they were struggling in the, in the church there from people who were saved. You know, they'd been in the baptistry, they gave their life to Christ, they were saved. But dude, that's all, okay? That, that nothing gonna happen after that. that, that's all. And Paul confronted that man to the Corinthian church Notice what he said in chapter 12, verse 27. He said, now you, he's talking about Christian people. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Now hang on there and watch this. There's people in Corinth saying, dude, I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to work. I'm not going to be a part of, you know, doing, pulling my bootstraps up and energy and all that. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And Paul said, what do you mean you're not going to do that? You're part of the body, dude. How do you not do that when you're part of the body? And those who are familiar with how he wrote that chapter know that he started using metaphors of the, of the human body. And, and he said, what if your hand said... What if your hand said to you, you know what, I, I just, I'm not going to pick things up anymore. What? What if your foot said to you, which by the way, if your foot ever talks to you, there's a problem somewhere, okay? But what if your foot said, you know what, I, 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 you know, I, I don't think I'm going to walk anymore. I, I'm not, I'm not going to take you anywhere. What if your ears said, you know what, I'm tired of listening to people. I just ain't going to listen. What if your eyes said, you know, looking at things just freaking me out. I'm not going to do it. And Paul uses all that saying, what do you mean? You're part of the body, dude. You're, you're, you're part of the family, sister. What, what do you mean you're not going to work? That's not what we do. 
If you're part of the body, you always work. And so you can see that what the Hebrews author is trying to say is consistent with all of Scripture. It is God's will that infants become adults. Okay, how do I do that? One of the ways is you work. That's how. And you become an adult in that process. In 2014, there was a guy named Damien Lowe. Damien is walking down the street in London. You can actually Google this and read about the story. He's walking down the street in London all by himself, minding his own business, and a van pulls up, and some people jump out of the van, and they abduct Damien out of the blue, and they throw him in the van, and they take off. And they have now abducted him and kidnapped him, and for the next 31 hours, they beat him, they kept water and food away from him, and they were not going to allow him to go until his family paid a ransom. And so they called the family, said it's going to cost this much money to get Damien back. And they said, we, we don't get that money. We, we don't get that kind of money. And so that thing went back and forth, and family was freaking out, and they were saying, you got you to give us the money. And finally, the abductors said that if we don't see the money, we're going to start chopping things off. And so we're going to chop a finger off, and we're going to mail it to you so we mean, you know we mean business. Now, I feel terrible for Damien, okay, horrible. He ended up living barely through it. But let's say you're Damien. And let's say you're sitting there with your abductors and they say, okay, we gotta, we gotta chop off one of your fingers, okay? We're gonna send it to your mama and see if she can come up with the money. And so, because we're nice, we're good kidnappers, okay? We're gonna give you the choice which finger you wanna chop off. Now, I'll just say you're there right now and, and you gotta choose which finger that you're gonna live without for the rest of your life. So I don't want you to say this out loud. I just want you to say, want you to, say it to yourself, which finger are you going to tell them, go ahead and chop it off? You got, you got five fingers. Everybody look at your fingers, okay? If you're missing a finger, I apologize for this illustration. But it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> I just thought of that. Oh, no. So uh, let's just pray, go home. So look at your fingers, okay? And make a decision right now because you only got a minute, man. They got the ax. You just got real quick. Okay, that's the finger I'm going to take off. Which finger you're going to take off? Now watch this. Watch this. Hand surgeons tell us there is only one answer to that question. There is only one finger that you ought to chop off. The others you ought to protect. You know what that finger is? So let's watch this. If you chose the pinky, raise your pinky up like this. If you chose the pinky, Okay. That's a terrible decision. <laughs> Hand surgeons will tell you this, that your pinky controls 50% of the strength of your hand. Don't ever let anybody take your pinky. Now, if you chose the ring finger or the middle finger, um, raise your hand. Don't raise your middle finger at me, but... <laughs> okay, if you chose one of those, okay? Terrible decision, terrible. You know why? Because hand surgeons will tell you this. Your, your index finger and your middle finger are attached to the same tendon. And so if you cut one of them off, it's really like you cut both of them off. Terrible decision. Now most of us would say, you don't get my index finger because that's the one I point out. I use that all the time. I don't know how I preach without an uh, index finger, okay? 
I don't know how to do that. And, and, and what, what hand surgeons tell us is that's the one that you ought to cut off because everything your index finger does, the other fingers can do. You can live without that, no problem. Now, did anybody say your thumb? If you just said your thumb, you're a weirdo. But if <laughs> you say your thumb, okay. So I know it's not a finger, okay? So you snobs out there, just leave my illustration alone. But so what do we do about the thumb? And what hand surgeons tell us is that is the one digit of the five that you must never cut off, ever. In fact, if people are born without a thumb or they have an accident and lose their thumb, they often do dramatic surgeries of taking one of the other fingers and removing it and making a thumb. And so why is that important? Because it is the only finger that works with all the other fingers. It's the only one that is a team. God created you to be a thumb. Now, these people aren't gonna be happy about what I'm about to say, and I did not talk to them ahead of time, and if you know them, do not tell them, okay? They're not here tonight, they'll be here Sunday. Do not tell them that. But Chick and Darlene Andrus are members of our church, and they are thrilled about the opportunity to be thumbs. They've been members here longer than most of you have been alive. And when we built this building in 2010, 12 years ago, it was one thing to come up with the money to build it. Okay, that's a big enough deal. But what a lot of people don't realize is when you build something like this, then you got to take care of it. you got to maintain it. And so how are we going to take care of maintaining it? And so we came up with this crazy idea. We said, okay, how about we, all of us together, how about all of us clean it? We'll be the cleaners here. And so we encourage our people, find you a room or find you a hallway, find you a restroom or something, and that's yours to clean. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in our church who've done that over the last 12 years. And, and they just come and they take care of it for us. And we just said, it's kind of like our home, okay? It's like your home. Just come clean your, your home. And there's been all kinds of people doing that from, from, from the whole time to maybe somebody did it for a couple months and, and just all that. And Chicken Arlene stood up and said, that is a great idea. And they said, we will not only take a room. They said, let us organize it all. We'll recruit everybody. We will organize them into a schedule. Uh, we will call them when it's their time and remind them uh, because I guess... Some Christians are like kindergartners and you gotta be reminded to be responsible. So they do, they do a, was that sarcastic? Yes, but it's from the power of the Holy Spirit. So <laughs> they said, let us do all that, okay? We'll take care of all that. And then if somebody misses, we'll cover for it and we'll take care of that. And this couple who's been members here longer than a lot of you've been alive, I'm not gonna tell you how old they are. They're older than me and they've done it for 12 years. And I don't know if I'm accurate, I don't know if I'm accurate about this, but I sat down and I, I did a little calculation, I think I'm probably right, because they chose to do what they chose. They have saved this church at a minimum, a quarter of a million dollars. 
Watch this. The value of a thumb is more than you will ever realize. And Paul, who's probably the guy that wrote Hebrews, said, it will even help you be an adult. Now, if you come to Eastside Christian Church, you know that we are somewhat visually driven. We got lights. We got different things that we do. One of the things we do visually is everything happens on those two screens behind me. And all sorts of songs are different things up. If you've ever wondered, how does that happen? How does that happen? That happens because of a group of people, and in particular, one person said, let me be the thumb that makes all that happen. Listen to that story. 